turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4. We're going to look at verses 2 through 9 this morning. And here's what I want you to do before we even do anything else is I want you excuse me, I hope that you have that connect card on the back. There's a place where you can take notes or you write this in your Bible or on another piece of paper or notebook that maybe you bring to take notes. If you've never taken notes before in your entire life, I encourage you to take notes this morning. Because we're gonna look at a passage of scripture today that if you were to ask me personally, what is the passage of scripture that you think of when when I say Philippians, for me personally, it's this passage of scripture that we're gonna look at today. And so what I want to do right out of the gate is ask you to do this. I want you to write out what are the worries that you have right now. Just write them out. Maybe it's one thing. What is the worry that you came into this room with today? What is the worry that you've been carrying for months now? What, is, what are the worries that you've been carrying for weeks now? What are the worry or worries that you've been carrying for years I want you to write them out. Write them out. Write them out in the margin of your Bible. Just describe them in one word if you can do that. And I want you to write the date. I want you to write the date. Right next to those because here's what I want you to do as we go into God's word today. I want you to allow God's word to speak to what you've written down. That's really what we ought to be doing every time we gather in this place. Listen, this can't be duplicated in your living room. Can't be duplicated on a computer screen. Gathering together with God's people, singing to the Lord collectively, reading his word collectively, hearing from God's word collectively. So some of you are watching this online right now, and you're thinking that you're doing church. You're not, but don't turn me off. You can't duplicate this. And so what I want you to do is I want you to write out those things and I want us to allow God's word to speak to those worries. Do you believe he can do that? Because I sure do. We say this, when God's word is open, God's mouth is open. And so here's the title of the message this morning and then I'm just gonna pray quickly for what you wrote down. What I've written down this week Here's the title, Worry is a Thief. Worry is a Thief. God, we come to you today, Lord, with our worries, whatever they may be. Lord, we even prayed before our service back in the back. Lord, knowing that if anyone says that they don't struggle with worry, Lord, then they also are fooling themselves. We all do, every one of us, but God, it's a thief. And so, Lord, I pray for the things that have been written down, Lord, that your word would speak to those worries, that we would lay them down today to you, the person, the only person who can carry those. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide us today as we open up your word, and it's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray, amen. What is worry? Like, I think, I think we need to ask ourselves that question, and it's in, in the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning, it's, depending on your translation, in my translation, which is the ESV, what we preach out of, it's the word entitled anxious. 
And here's what the word actually means. It means to be pulled in different directions. Man, isn't that what worry does? But that's literally what the word means, to be pulled in opposite directions. Where the word comes, the old English root from where our word comes in the English worry means this, to strangle. Interesting, right? Because if you've ever really been consumed with worry, you know how it literally, it feels like it's strangling you, doesn't it? Interesting. Worry even has physical consequences. Like I was just just looking at, at just reading things on, on medical blogs and medical websites about how worry even has physical consequences. These were some of the things that I saw. It causes headaches, it causes neck pain, it causes ulcers, it causes pain in the back, it affects our thinking, it affects even our digestion. Here's what I was shocked by. It even affects your coordination. So some of you are like, I'm just horribly clumsy. Maybe, maybe it's because of worry. And we know this, but here's what I want us to understand today when we look at this passage of scripture, and it's this idea, that worry is the great thief of the stability that is yours in Jesus. We've been talking all these weeks, now in our 10th week in this series, about to wrap it up here in a couple weeks, and, and we've been talking about the stability that is ours in Jesus Christ and how we, how we experience that in the midst of rough waters, how we experience joy in the midst of pain. But listen to me, we need to understand something about worry. It is the great thief of our stability and joys, that joy that is found in Jesus, and we need to call worry for what is. It is because we're going to see in this passage of scripture that we think we see that that if we handle and approach worry the right way, the, what we will experience is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, and it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And when we think about worry, worry is really wrong thinking, right? It's wrong thinking. That deals with our mind, and it's wrong feeling. That deals with our heart. It's wrong thinking and wrong feelings in regards to circumstances, people, and things. And worry is really a choice. Nobody's making you worry. Your circumstances aren't making you worry. Worry is a choice of distrust. That's what worry is. It's a choice of distrust. And listen to me, when I think about how often I want to think about things and analyze things and, and, and just continue to mull it over in my mind and worry about it, here's what I've found. It contributes nothing to the thing that I'm actually worrying about. You ever find that? That worry is wasted energy. It does not contribute to the solution of whatever the thing is that you're actually worrying about. But yet some of us are so consumed. I think of Matthew 6, 27, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his life? Here's what I found about worry. Worry doesn't add hours to our lives, but it sure does steal them, doesn't it? But let's be honest. We are in church, right? 
Let's be honest. Let's be transparent. It's hard not to worry. It's hard for me not to worry. It's hard for you not to worry. And it's not enough to tell ourselves, quit worrying. Right? Like, I can tell you today, here's the message, quit worrying. And you're like, thank you so much. I'm still worrying. It's not enough to say, I got to stop this. I got to stop this. I can't do this. It's not enough to tell ourselves to quit worrying because that will never capture and guard ourselves from the great thief that worry is. Because worry is an inside job. Worry's in here. And I can tell you all day long not to worry, but it's an inside job that you have to deal with, and it's an inside job that I have to deal with, and it takes more than good intentions to experience victory over worry. So you ready to hear what God's word has to say? Have I set it up long enough? All right. Let's look at what God's word has to say. And what I want to do in this passage of scripture, and really what God wants to do through this passage of scripture this morning, is to tell us how we guard ourselves against the great thief of worry. And I believe there's four ways that are found in this passage of scripture. So let's look at verses two and three, and let's start there. Paul says this, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Sintiche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. So he's speaking now to the church, referring it to the church at Philippi as his true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me. That's labored side by side is such an interesting word. It literally means it's a gladiator term to where gladiators would fight side by side. You ever see the movie The Gladiator? How many of you have seen that movie? All right, good. I'm in good company. That's like one of my all-time favorite movies. And I always worry. My legalism comes back like it haunts me. Don't judge me by that, all right? But that movie, Gladiator, you ever see the way that they fought? Sometimes they would fought, fight, chained together, side by side to, to fight the enemy. That's that word. They have labored side by side with Paul, which just as a side note, and let me tell you something, women are such an important part of ministry in the local church. Don't lose that. Don't lose that. I think sometimes we, some churches get into the mindset, and praise God, that's not here, and we try to be very intentional with this, that, well, the only place for women is in children's ministry. Like, not that we don't need women in children's ministry. We have guys in children's ministry. But what I love about this passage of Scripture, just as a side note, because this really has nothing to do with the idea of worry, but I want to mention it, how Paul commends the women that are side by side with him doing the work of the ministry and how important women are to the ministry of the local church. But I think it's interesting here that he says here, they've labored side by side with me in verse two, and he says, in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow's workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, you read verses two and three, and evidently what's going on here are these, these two women, Euodia and Sintiche, are kind of at odds with one another. Now, just think about this. Can we put ourselves in this context? And I just want to take a moment because I can't stay on this too long, but, but just think about it. This letter would have been read to, in, the, 
in the, and passed around and read at the church of Philippi. And they met in homes and different places. And this would have been read. And can you imagine, like, everybody's reading it. And let's be honest, like, this is, can you imagine we just, we just, in a Sunday morning, started in verse 1 of chapter 1 and just kept on reading all the way through the end of chapter 4. Let's be honest, there might be a couple times where your mind might wander a little bit, right? It's just the reality. But can you imagine all of a sudden he's just finished chapter three and the content of chapter three and and, and the content of chapter two and chapter one and now he comes to chapter four and I bet some people's minds might have been dozing off a bit and all of a sudden he names these two ladies out by name. Hey, uh, and Euodia and Sintiche. Whoa, all of a sudden we woke up. He singled these two ladies out. How in the world does Paul know hundreds and hundreds of miles away in Rome that what's going on in the church and how these two ladies are at odds with one another? This is what's going on, and we don't, we aren't, obviously you can see in the passage, we aren't told the problem of what is going on here, the disagreement that was going on, but you could be sure that if Euodia and Sintiche were in the room when this letter was being read, all of a sudden it was like, oh, look at what Paul knows about you too. Now, all of a sudden, all eyes are on them. And let's think about this. Paul's in prison. He doesn't know if his life's going to be taken from him. And so in your minds, you ought to be thinking to yourself, man, doesn't have Paul have bigger things to write about than to worry about in a disagreement between two women? Like, why is he mentioning that out? Why is, the Holy, why is he under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing this out? Here's why. Here's Paul's primary reason. Because he understands that a divided church is a terrible witness. He understands how it's so easy for disagreements in the church, especially leaders in the church, to manifest themselves and lead to dysfunction in the whole body and actually cause the testimony of Jesus Christ to be harmed. So Paul understands that. So in the midst of him writing everything that he's writing in chapter 3 and chapter 2 about having a mindset of humility, about how to carry these things out, out in their lives in chapter three and now he comes to chapter four before he deals with a passage of scripture that we know so well and verses five through nine he says wait a minute we need to stop here and we need to make sure that we're reminding ourselves what's at stake here when disagreements often can become the big thing see this What I see from this in verses two and three is the first way that we guard ourselves against worry. And here's number one, keep short accounts in your relationships. Keep short accounts in your relationships. This is not the first time that Paul has given instruction and how to conduct oneself in their relationships with one another. In chapter two, verses one through five, we looked at this. He talks about having this mindset and this attitude, this this action of humility with one another. He mentions again in verses 14 and 15, he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30 on how relationships should operate with believers in Jesus Christ. And here's what I found that when we make when we are not diligent in keeping short accounts in our relationships, we leave the door open for things to creep in. Anger, bitterness, discouragement, but in this context, worry. 
worry. When I'm not making sure that I'm keeping short accounts in my marriage, in my, with my kids, with relationships and friendships, with people in the church, what oftentimes can creep in is worry. Think about this. You, you find yourself worrying about what someone thinks about you when you don't keep short accounts, right? Well, what's this person think of me? And we worry about what has been said about you. What has this person said about me? We worry if they will see that you're right and they're wrong. And we worry when we don't keep short accounts. Think about it in your relationships when you've not done this. Worry creeps in. And worry is the great thief of stability. But listen to me, more, more specific, worry is the great thief of stability in your relationships with one another and in the church. And doesn't, I mean, Jesus spends so much time talking with how to handle this, how to keep short accounts, does he not? Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he talks about, hey, if you're coming to offer a gift and you have something against someone, leave the gift and go get that right first and then take your gift and offer it on the altar. Jesus is very clear on the importance of keeping short accounts. He says in Matthew 18 that if your brother has offended you, go and tell him his fault, or we could say her fault, with you and him alone. How many times in your relationships would your relationships problems been solved if you just would have gone to the person that you had an offense with? See, we open the door to worry when we don't keep short accounts. Matthew 7, right? What did we say? Man, we worry that, man, are they going to see that I'm right and they're wrong? And Jesus says in Matthew 7, man, you're so worried about the speck in your brother's eye and you got this massive log in your eye. Go take out the log and then worry about the speck. But I think it's so interesting that in verses 2 and 3 that Paul feels it necessary to point out a disagreement between two women. Why? Because he knows the potential danger that that has to the body. Here's a second way. Let's continue reading, and it's found in verses 4 and 5. Paul says this, rejoice. That's in a tense that has the idea of keep on doing this not one time but keep on rejoicing and then in case you wondered what the word rejoice in the tense in which it was written and it has the idea of keeping on he says rejoice in the lord always now some of you may be questioning seriously always johnny always yes but what about yes no not not in this. Yes. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Here's what I, don't you see, don't you see Paul, the Holy, better yet, the Holy Spirit through Paul knows how much we struggle with this. So he knows that as we even read this today on this Sunday morning that we're like, we read that and we're like, rejoice in the Lord always. Well, not sure really, that's not always. No, no, no. This got to mean something different in the original language. I can tell you it doesn't. Rejoice in the Lord always, really? Okay, so the Holy Spirit's gonna say, okay, I know you're doubting right now, so I'm gonna say it again. Again, I say rejoice. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then he says this, and let your reasonableness. So if your translations may say something different, but it has the idea of gentleness or meekness. Now, guys, let's be honest. Probably not the number one compliment that you would think, man, would be awesome if my wife gave me right now is, man, you're such a meek man, right? Probably not the first one that would come to your mind. Probably be, man, you such an amazing physique. And you look like you've lost weight. You're so strong. Right? Maybe, maybe that would be the things. But probably not meek. This phrase is not original to me, but I think it's so good. The phrase said, says this about meekness. If you think meek is weak, try doing it for a week. Because meekness has the idea of literally that picture of a, of a bridle in a horse, all of this power. You ever see a horse and all the muscles that you see rippling on its side and back and but that little bridle, what does that little bridle do? It keeps that horse under control. That's the idea of meekness, gentleness, reasonableness, is that there, it's power under control. And Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So here's the second way that we guard ourselves against the great thief of worry. Number two, make the choice to rejoice. It's a choice. Just like worry is a choice. I can choose to worry or I can make the choice to rejoice. See, rejoice in the Lord always. Can I just be clear about this? And I want to make sure you get this. It's not this idea or, or, or this concept like the, remember, the Bobby McFerrin song. Some of you don't know Bobby McFerrin, but when I say the song, you'll know it. Don't worry, be happy. I can't whistle or I would do it right now. It's not that. Like, let's just not worry and be happy. I know that song so well because when I worked at SeaWorld, like they played it over and over and over and over and over again. That's not what rejoice in the Lord always means. Rejoicing in the Lord doesn't mean this either. It doesn't mean, well, I'm never going to experience sadness or grief. I'm just supposed to be happy all the time. That's not the idea of rejoicing, Lord. We see this in Paul's letter. Paul isn't all the time saying, man, I'm so happy about this. Right? He, he talks about how he's concerned and how he's grieving over Epaphroditus' illness. Remember that? In, in cha end of chapter 2, he talks about in chapter 3 how he weeps over those who are being enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. So rejoice in the Lord always doesn't mean I just walk around with this permanent smile on my face. That's not what it means. Listen to me. Rejoicing is much deeper than being happy about something. There's nothing wrong with happiness, but you need to understand the difference between happiness and rejoicing or happiness and joy because happiness is based on circumstance. And there's nothing wrong with happiness. Something awesome can happen to you this week, and what does it do? It makes you happy. But happiness is not joy. Listen to me. Joy is sourced 
in the Lord and not in circumstances, which is why Paul makes the point here in verse four. He says, rejoice, but you ought to circle in your Bible the phrase, in the Lord, because joy is sourced in the Lord and not in circumstances. Rejoicing in the Lord comes from me. Remember? Wanting to know the Lord more and more, as Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. It's me pressing into that goal of, Lord, I want to be more like Jesus. God, I want to know you deeper and more intimately in my relationship with you. Lord, I want to run to you when things are painful, when things are hard. God, I want to run to you. And when I'm treasuring Jesus more and more, here's what happens. I begin to see my joy grow as I understand that Jesus is really the greatest thing that I need. See, that's the idea of rejoice is I'm gonna make sure that I'm treasuring Jesus. But once again, we're dealing with a subject that we need to be honest about. That's easier said than done, is it not? It's way easier said than done. It's easy to say that in this room. It's a lot harder to say that when you walk out of those doors and you get in your car and you face whatever you're facing. It's way easier said than done. But notice, I want to point you to the the importance of that phrase always because Paul does not say rejoice when everything's going well. He says rejoice always, and always includes pain. It includes distress. It includes tragedy. Where we're running to the Lord and saying, Lord, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this stress, Lord, I'm going to treasure you. I think back in, man, 14 years ago. I mean, Lori and I were married five years. I was in my 20s, man. Great days. I was in my 20s. And I remember I was pastoring in northern Pennsylvania and our daughter Lily was born in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I remember when she was born, she was born three weeks early, which is not really a, a big thing. That's not anything to worry about. I know we got a lot of people, a lot of ladies pregnant in here, and you know that three weeks early, that that's, that's not an unusual thing. But for us, I remember, I remember holding Lily at when she was born and just being overwhelmed. Some of you are brand new dads and you know that feeling, right? And being overwhelmed by that reality that man, all of a sudden I'm a dad. Man, but like just minutes before I was consumed with myself. And now I'm holding this, this little child that like fits in both of my hands and her little tush like fits right in, in my, I gotta be careful because Lily's in here. And, and, um, and just holding, holding her. And then literally going from like, and, and the doctor like taking them, you know, they weigh them and all those different types of things. And then all of a sudden going from a high of, I can't believe I'm a dad, to literally the doctor coming in and saying, uh, we've run into a problem. Lily's lungs are underdeveloped. And I remember going from a high to like a low that I've never experienced before in my entire life. And that's all they said. And we'll just have to keep her under observation and, and see where we're at in the morning. 
Well, in my mind, I'm thinking, I've never, I didn't never did, I never did well in biology, but I know you have to have your lungs to live. And I remember like, so Lori has just given birth, and I remember sitting by her bedside and telling her, no, everything's going to be okay, and, and we prayed, and, and uh, like telling her that, but man, in my mind, I was thinking anything but that. And I remember in the hospital, because we had to drive 45 minutes to a hospital, because we were in such rural area of northern Pennsylvania, they had a place where, where you could stay and where you could sleep in another part of the hospital. And I remember going down, leaving that room being strong for her, and going down and literally bawling my eyes out. Bawling my eyes out. Because I was thinking, Lord, you gave us this child she seemed healthy. Now her lungs are underdeveloped. We, you need your lungs to be able to live. And I remember literally for the, really the first time that I can remember in my life that I was tested. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? I'm a pastor. I preach this stuff. What am I gonna do? I didn't get much sleep that night as you can imagine, but I remember in that time, just going to God and just pouring my heart out to him. Lily was in the NICU for five days. And I think back when I think about this and I think about rejoicing in the Lord always and how difficult it was to rejoice in that time. Now obviously, Lily was good. After those five days, I didn't know that at the time. But what I learned in that moment is, Lord, I'm placed, I'm put in a place where I have the choice to trust you or I have the choice to just be consumed with worry. And I saw what worry was doing to me. And the Lord in his grace reminded me that, listen, you need to run to me. Because did you notice in this passage of scripture that what we find is Paul says, let your reasonableness. See, I was put in a place where I couldn't fix it. And I love to fix stuff. Trust me. I love to fix stuff. But I was put in a place where I had to exercise meekness that wasn't in myself. And I'm telling you, the one thing that helped me was that little phrase that you see there at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. The Lord's with you. The Lord's with me. The Lord is at hand. That's just not talking about Jesus Christ is coming back one day. Though that's an amazing hope. That's something that we strain forward to. That's the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus as we looked at in last week's passage of Scripture in chapter 3. But listen to me. It just doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is coming back again. It means he's right there with you in the moment. Remind yourself of that. Be reasonable about what you are going through. Remind yourself, Lord, Lord, my strength comes from you. Lord, treasuring you, pressing into you. That's where joy is found. Joy is sourced, not in my circumstances, but in you and understanding you are right there with me in the pain, in the distress. And many of you who have gone through things so much worse than I, many of you who your situation didn't turn out like mine, you actually lost lost your child 
You lost the one that you loved. But I've seen joy in you. Because you understood where joy is found. It's reminding yourself that the Lord is at hand. He's right there with you. And when you think about this word doxology, you're like, where are you going with that? When you think about this word doxology, it comes from two Greek words. It comes from doxa, which means belief, and logos, which means word. See, in our lives, my choice to rejoice is a doxology. It's me taking what I believe about God. Lord, I know that you're in control. I know that you're all powerful. God, I know that your presence is with me through the Holy Spirit. But in the moment when I'm going through pain and I'm going through tragedy and I'm going through distress, I have a choice to make. Am I gonna choose to rejoice? Am I going to take what I know and what I believe to be true and I'm actually going to put it to words? I'm actually gonna say it out loud. I'm actually going to tell you, Lord, that I'm going to trust you in this moment. That's what I had to do by myself, work it in me, not tell Lori to do that for her. No, no, no. I needed to do that for me in that bedroom three floors down from where she was. See, I remember when I was in chapel and in college, we used to, when we would go to chapel, we'd stand up, the bell would ring, and it would be time to start chapel. You know, you got over 5,000 people in this auditorium, and we'd sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You know that doxology? But listen to me, spiritual Spiritual stability and joy is directly related to how you think about God. See, what fuels my choice to rejoice is what I think about God. That's why the Psalms were written, that's why they were put to music so that they would remind the children of Israel that this is who your God is. Because God knew your joy is not sourced in circumstances. Your joy is sourced in me. And the second way that I guard myself against worry is I have to say, Lord, I'm going to make the choice to rejoice. And the motivation for that choice is to believe in who you are. Are. Here's the third way, and it's found in verses five, verses six and seven. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Paul's laying down a lot of 100% statements. Is he not in this passage of scripture? Rejoice? How often, Lord? Always. Lord, I know I'm not supposed to be anxious and worry, but. How often, Lord? In everything. Or I'm sorry, in, don't be worried about anything. But in everything, pray. Now here's what oftentimes my life looks like. My life looks at this verse and says this. Be anxious about everything. And in nothing. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Am I the only one in this room? 
Don't leave me up here alone. Absolutely not. I know that. But Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Here's the result. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard. There's another military term again. Literally surround your hearts, your feelings, and your minds, what you think about in Christ Jesus. See, here's what oftentimes is true in my life. I will pray about the big things and think I can handle the little things. But what so often happens in my life is I pray about the big things and think I can handle the little things, and then the little things become big things. See, here's the third way that we guard ourselves against the great thief of worry. We take our worries to God. To God. Not first to your spouse. Not first to your life group leader. Not first to your pastor. Not first to your friend. Not first to your boyfriend or your girlfriend. There's nothing wrong with that. No, no, no. I'm going to take my worries to God. See, the praying about everything is a key to experiencing victory over worry. There's no small thing that you worry about because you're worrying about it, therefore it's not a small thing. And here's what I love. I love this. Because when I am praying to God, I'm taking my worries to him and saying, God, they're yours. I'm gonna let you worry about them. God, I'm going to make the choice. I'm taking my worries to you so that you can worry about them. I'm going to place them before you. I'm going to hand them over to you. Martin Luther, father of the great reformation, Protestant reformation says this, pray and let God worry. I love that. What does 1 Peter 5, 7 say? Casting all your anxieties, all your worries on him because why? He cares for you. What did I say? My joy is sourced in the Lord and who I believe him to be, who I am growing and understanding him to be. And notice the motivation that Peter gives is really the same thing that Paul is saying. No, no, no. We cast, we throw, we lay down, we give the Lord our worries. Why? Because we know he cares for us. I'm going to take my worries to God. But I love that Paul just doesn't say, here's how you handle your worries, church at Philippi. You pray about it. Like you'd come to me and say, Johnny, I'm struggling with my worry. And if I just said, here, here, I can, I can solve it in three words. It's going to be a very short counseling session. Pray about it. See you in a week. You'd be like, how insensitive he is. But Paul just doesn't say pray about it, though he uses that word. He uses three words to describe what it looks like to take our worries to God. And so let me quickly just show you the significance of those three words. He says, first of all, he says, but in everything by prayer. That word prayer literally has the idea of adoration or worship. 
See, the first thing that I need to do with in my prayer life when I'm worrying about something, and I'm like, God, I'm gonna take this to you, but here's what I'm gonna do. Before I get to the supplication piece, God, I'm gonna take time to worship you, to adore you, to remind myself who you are. God, I'm gonna make sure that I don't skip this step because really, I'm not gonna take to the Lord my needs if I don't first remind myself of his power and that he can actually handle the things that I am worrying about. So that prayer has the idea of adoration and worship. God, I'm gonna remind myself, first of all, who you are, and I'm gonna worship you before I get into what I'm worrying about. And then we come to supplication, and this is what we know. This is what we wanna jump to and forget the worship piece, but supplication has the idea of our needs and our problems. It carries a weight to it. It's not this insincere crying out to God, but it's this heart-wrenching, God, I'm crying out to you. It's the same word that we find in Hebrews 5, 7, where it talks about how Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane poured his heart out to God. And then we come to the word that we so often just gloss over. Thanksgiving. You're like, I got the prayer piece. Okay, God, I'm going to worship you. I for sure got the supplication piece. God, I'm going to take to you, to, to you the, the needs, the worries, the struggles that I have, wanting you to intervene. But man, we so often miss this piece, the thanksgiving piece. And listen to me, the thanksgiving piece is kryptonite's, or worries kryptonite. Because here's what I found. I can't be thankful and worry at the same time. Anybody in this room be able to do that? At the same time, shocker, nobody's hands raised. You can't be thankful and worry at the same time. This Thanksgiving is this humble, Lord, I thank you that you can even hear me right now. That I can talk to my heavenly Father because of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection on my behalf. God, I thank you that, that I can talk to you right now, that you can hear me right now. Lord, that you are near, as we saw in verse five of chapter four. God, I thank you, Lord, what you have done. Lord, let me rehearse what you have done, not just concentrate on what I need you to do or what you haven't done, but God, let me concentrate on what you have done. And then we come to the result of taking our worries to God, going to God through prayer, adoration, supplication. God, here are my needs. Thanksgiving, God, let me praise you for what you've already done. And based on what you've already done, God, I know that you can intercede on my behalf, even if you work it out differently than I thought. Listen to me, don't define God's goodness on how God does something according or not according to your agenda because God's goodness for every follower of Jesus Christ is rooted in the reality that God saved me by grace. I have no excuse to doubt God's goodness if I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior because he has saved me from an eternal hell and given me a relationship with him and a home in heaven. I have no reason to say that God is not good. So I have every reason to be thankful. But the result is, is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding that doesn't make logical sense. That someone looks at you and said, how in the world can you be experiencing peace in the midst of your pain? The type of peace that I've seen many people emulate in their lives through the tragedies that they've gone through. When I reflect, even as some of you, as I look at your faces and what you've gone through in the last year, I've seen that peace in you. It can't be explained in human terms, but we want the peace that surpasses all understanding without doing what's necessary to receive it. 
And this peace guards, surrounds our hearts, our feelings, and our minds, our thoughts in Christ Jesus. Take our worries to God. And here's the last thing. It's found in verses 8 and 9. And I'm going to give you the way and then read the text. Here's the last thing. Think and practice what you've learned to be true. Think and practice. Look at what it says in verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. Well, where's truth found? It's found in God's word. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, it has the idea of respectable, whatever is just, whatever is right according to the standard of God's word, whatever is pure, whatever is morally clean, whatever is lovely, whatever is kind and gracious is that word, whatever is commendable or thought well of, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what does Paul say? Think about these things. Think about these things. See, your mind and your heart feed each other. Your thoughts and your feelings, they feed each other. I love what John Piper says. He says, intellect exists to throw logs into the furnace of our affections for God. Your thoughts, what you know to be true, what you're thinking about in your feelings, they feed each other. But listen to me, your mind needs to shape the way that you feel. What did I say spiritual maturity was? All the way back at the beginning of the series. It's taking what you've learned to be true, what you know to be true, and applying it to the way that you feel. I'll give you a perfect example. If I was to tell you, hey, describe your wife, Lori, and I was like, oh, let me tell you about Lori. She is a beautiful woman. She has amazing brown hair and green eyes, and she's from the state of Texas. Man, I love my wife. There's a major problem with that because Lori has black hair and brown eyes and is from the state of Pennsylvania. See, I can communicate how I feel about my wife, but there's a problem there because I'm not taking the facts of what I know about my wife and using those facts to describe the way that I feel. And so often in our lives, we allow our feelings to be in the driver's seat. You've heard me say that before. But it's so important that I am making sure that I am thinking about the things that actually bring me to a place to rejoice, that bring me to a place of spiritual stability, that bring me to a place that says, God, I'm going to treasure you and I'm not going to worry about these things. See, so many of us are just constantly consumed with the things that we know do not bring life, but they bring worry. And Paul says you need to think about the good things. So many of us watch so much smut on TV and listen to all the wrong things and we're putting garbage in and expecting us to live lives of spiritual victory. And it doesn't work that way. And then what does he say? What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. You notice in chapter 3 and 4 how many times, really in this book, Paul talks about working out our salvation, striving for what is ahead. Here he says, practice these things. Because he knows that it's not enough to know this stuff. It's how we're taking what we know and we're allowing it to preach to what we feel so that we can guard ourselves against the great thief of worry. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29 says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.